I don't think there's anything worse than being in a situation where you're stuck and you can't fix it, where you, you don't want it, but there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And throughout this series, if you haven't been with us, we've been talking about that very scenario and that very circumstance that all of us from time to time find ourselves in. We've been asking this question, okay, so what do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when you're in a financial situation where there's no way forward and no way out? It's just, it is what it is. You can't go back and unwind things enough to, uh, to fix it all completely. It's just going to be this way from here on out. There's some consequences or some issues or some, you know, uh, struggles that you're going to have to deal with. There's some pain points that you're just not going to ever be able to escape. It's there. What do you do when you're in a marriage? What do you do when you're in a parenting situation or you have some family dynamics where there's no way forward and there's no way out? Like it's, It just is what it is, and you can't really unfix it at this point. You just have to navigate your way through it, and you know it's going to be the same next year as it is today. It's going to be the same in five years and ten years. As it is next year, it's just not going to change. What do you do when you find yourself in one of those health situations or a professional situation? There's no way forward. There's no way out. You're just going to wake up every day. You're going to deal with it. Like that dream is dead professionally. You're not getting into law school, medical school, or you're not going to end up in that spot in the company or, you know, with your career that you thought it was going to be. Or when you're in a health situation, you're just going to wake up every day. You're going to keep facing the same challenges every single day. There's nothing you can do to fix it. What do you do? When there's nothing you can do, that's what we've been talking about. And part of the reason I wanted to talk about this for three weeks is because all of us face this from time to time, and a lot of you are probably in the middle of these situations right now, and the reality is the options that are obvious to us all when we're facing these kinds of circumstances, none of those options are good. They all feel natural, and they all feel right, but the reality is they're all very, very dangerous. The options that are so obvious are, well, I should just quit, or I should run, or I should hide, or I should try to avoid... Or, I, you know, I'm going to get bitter and I'm going to be angry and I'm going to be resentful. That's just natural. That just comes with it. I'm going to be jealous because, there, you know, comparison is never more powerful than you're in the middle of a situation where you know you're never going to have something that you've always wanted to have or you know that situation is not going to change. And suddenly you look around and it's just like everybody around you has the thing that you wished you had but you know you're never going to have. And so jealousy gets really powerful. And as we've talked about throughout the series, if you're not careful... Those choices, as obvious and as natural as they may seem, they lead to some really dangerous places. They lead you to believe, well, I'm never going to be happy again. Like the previous years before all this took place, those were, going, those were the best years of my life. It's not, I'm not going to be happy from this point forward. There's, nothing good's going to come out of this. Clearly, you can't bring anything good out of this. That's how it feels in the moment. And in some cases, there's no point in continuing. There's no point in trying to fight this. There's no point in trying to, you know, navigate through it. There's no point in trying to rebound or recover or reconcile the situation. You just feel like there's no purpose and no point in it whatsoever. And yet the reality is, as real as those things feel, they're false. As real as those things feel, if you grab hold of that and you believe that, then you lose what is essential to life. You lose your joy, you lose your hope, and you lose your purpose. And yet the reality is, God, when you begin to open up and read the writings in Scripture of all of these people who follow Jesus, you find that in the middle of adversity and difficulty, they did not lose those three things. They didn't lose joy, hope, or purpose. They actually came to believe in spite of their circumstances that God was not absent. He was still there. God was not angry with them. He wasn't out to get them. God wasn't apathetic, that God really did care. And most of all, they came to believe that there was a purpose, and this is what's key. There is a purpose in the middle of their in the meantime, what do you do when there's nothing you can do kind of moment. That there was a purpose for that. They believed they could, because of that, they could be happy again. They believed that there was a joy in the middle of that that they could experience, and they believed that something good could come out of it, and there was a purpose in the middle of it. And they also believed this, and this is what we talked about last week. 
They believed that God had made a promise to them. God had made a promise to us that they could hold on to with full confidence. And that is, in the middle of this very, very difficult trying circumstance, God promised his grace would be sufficient and his power would be made perfect in their weakness. In other words, the gap that they felt, the hole that they felt, the this is as much as I can handle and yet there's all of this and I don't know what to do with this and I can't fix this. In the middle of I don't think I can go on or I don't think I can handle this or I don't think I can keep on keeping on. In the middle of all that weakness, they believed God would show up and he would fill that gap or he would complete that gap with his power, with his grace, and with his strength. Now, the reason I bring that up, and we're going to dig into that a little bit more today, the reason I bring that up is because these first century followers of Jesus were not in any way strangers to adversity, and they did not wrestle with, and they did not find a conflict in the very thing that we all tend to wrestle and struggle with. They found no conflict in the fact that bad things were happening to them, and yet God was good. I bring that up because isn't it true that when you're in the middle of an in-the-meantime moment, this is one of the things that you wrestle with and wonder about. It's, well, if God's so good, how could he allow? If God's so good, then why wouldn't he change? If God's so good, then why isn't he fixing? And yet these early followers of Jesus who faced adversity after adversity after adversity, you don't find any inclination in their writings that they ever asked those questions, that they ever thought, well, how could a good God allow? And you might say, well, they just didn't want to be transparent. They didn't want to show that side of themselves. I don't think that was it, and here's why. The difference between them and us is they lived at a time where they had seen their leader and their savior with their own eyes. They had watched the suffering he went through. In in some of their cases, they had watched him hang on a Roman cross. So how, if you have seen that, then how do you begin to say, well, how could a good God let bad things happen to me if you have watched God on a cross himself. You just have a different perspective about it. They just assumed that these two things were not mutually exclusive. They had complete confidence in the middle of their adversity that God was good and God loved them, even though things were difficult. As a matter of fact, what ended up happening in so many of their lives was the adversity that they experienced actually deepened their confidence and their trust in their Heavenly Father. They did not lean away, they leaned in, they did not walk away. They weren't, it seems they weren't even tempted to walk away. That they navigated their way through all these sufferings. Actually grateful for the opportunity that the suffering brought. Now the reason I say that is because when you open up the New Testament in particular and you begin to read all of these writings, so many of the people who wrote these documents address this issue. And the reason it's addressed so much is because it's what they were all facing. It's what was front and center on the minds of followers of Jesus in the first century. They were having to deal with adversity right and left. It was part of their everyday way of life. And so these writers would talk about this. And specifically, they talked about two things that those of us who follow Jesus need to do in the middle of adversity. They would encourage their readers, they were encouraging us, hey, when you find yourself in this situation, don't forget to do these two things. So if you've been tracking with me through the series and you're like me and you're going, okay, all of this has been great, but I'm wanting to know what practically I should do Well, they're going to tell us what practically we should do. As a matter of fact, they said we should believe and we should ask. Anytime you're in the middle of an in the meantime, I can't fix this, I don't know what to do about this kind of moment. They said you ought to believe and you ought to ask. But specifically, you ought to believe something very specific. You ought to ask something very specific. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, I thought, okay, a lot of people wrote about this. Which passage should I talk about? Because... Peter wrote about this a lot. 
John wrote about this a lot. They both spent a lot of time with Jesus. They both watched it all go down. They both saw him die on a cross. Uh, you got people like um, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote about it a lot. And I thought, you know what? That's pretty fascinating. That, that the brother of Jesus would talk about suffering and the brother of Jesus would be willing to go through suffering and, in order to follow his own brother. In order to, you know, because he believed his own brother was his Lord. So I thought, let's look at what James has to say about this. And again, if you, most of you know this. If you don't know this, James didn't follow Jesus until after the resurrection. He was as skeptical as anybody until he saw Jesus die and come back to life. And he was like, okay, I'm in. But what fascinates me about James is that he spent the rest of his life following Jesus, enduring this extraordinary suffering. Adversity was an everyday part, basically, of James' life. And yet, he never wavered in his faith that his brother was his savior. As a matter of fact, James was a walking, talking billboard, a walking, talking advertisement for the validity of who Jesus claimed to be. He was so powerful in terms of his witness, if you will, or his influence in the early church, because everybody would look and go, good grief, if Jesus' own brother believes that's who he is, and he's willing to go through all this, then, you know, must be right. You know, who am I not to go through this as well? As a matter of fact, it was so difficult on James that eventually, he was, he was such a target, that eventually, a few years after Jesus, a couple decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, when the powers of the Roman Empire were in transition there in Jerusalem and there in Israel, when they were in transition and there was nobody in power for a short period of time, the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem saw their opening and they saw their chance to, to take care of James while no Roman authority was looking over their shoulder saying, no, you can't do that because we don't want an insurrection. We don't want a riot. We don't want you know, any, any unease or unrest in the city. So during this transition, when the Romans were waiting to put a new governor in place, the religious leaders arrested James, they had him stoned, and they had him killed. Now, just real quick, and we'll keep going, but I'm telling you, if you wonder if any of this stuff is true, it's hard to discount the fact that James was willing to go to his death believing that his brother was his Savior and his Lord. There's really no other explanation for that other than he saw Jesus on a cross, and then he saw him walk out of a tomb. But James, who obviously went through a lot, has a lot to say about what to do for all of us when we find ourselves in an in-the-meantime kind of moment. And so I just want to read you what he has to say, and whether you believe this or not, A, it's fascinating that we can read what the brother of James, or brother of Jesus, rather, had to say 2,000 years ago. I mean, just to, to think, well, we know the thoughts of someone that close to Jesus. To me, that's pretty fascinating. And you ought to sit up and listen just because of what he went through. Like, he's got enough credibility, and he went through so much that it causes us to go, okay, well, I may not agree with it, but he clearly lived it, so I should at least pay attention. So here's what James wrote when it came to what to do, what to believe, what to ask in the middle of your in-the-meantime moment. He said this, James, this is the very beginning of his letter, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is how he referred to his brother. That's just fascinating to me. I don't know what my brother would have to do for me to refer to him as Lord, but it'd be a lot more in reps and ball games good. I mean, he's a great rep, but he ain't that good. So, Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes, and this is code for Jewish people, okay, when you hear 12 tribes. So, he's writing to Jewish people, not Gentile people primarily, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, and he just says, greetings, greetings. Now, the point I want to make here before we move on is this word scattered. This word scattered carried some significance. This word scattered basically is code for 
hey, I know we've got Jewish people all across the nations in the known world today, and you're scattered. And the point, the, the reason you're scattered is because you're living in the middle of an in-the-meantime kind of moment. The reason you're scattered, and Jewish people understood this, the reason you're scattered is because for the last few hundred years, our nation has repeatedly been conquered and deported, conquered and deported, conquered and deported, conquered and scattered. And the reason there are Jewish people in all these nations all around is because we've been conquered so many times we couldn't keep living in our own land and we were either forced to move or we were hauled away or whatever the case may be. So James is saying, I'm writing to a group of people who are living in a, in a circumstance that they did not want. It is not of their choosing. But you can't really fix it. You can't come back to Israel. Israel's still under Roman occupation anyway. You know, things are not the way we want them to be. And James says, I've got some advice for you on what to do as you deal and navigate through these situations where there's actually nothing you can do. And here's his advice. And this sounds so strange, but remember, it's coming from James, okay? He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, I just find this to be so insensitive. If it wasn't James saying it, you'd just totally dismiss it. Imagine, just to put it in our context, imagine that you came to me and you said, Matt, let me tell you what's going on. I'd love for you to pray for me. And you start telling me about your circumstance or situation that's so difficult. You know, it's a health thing or, you know, there's a divorce situation or whatever the case may be. It's just something that's so, so painful for you. And there are tears and you get done telling me. Imagine when you finished, if I look back at you and said, man, you ought to be so happy you're going through that right now. That would solve you calling me up. I wouldn't have as many people I had to talk to because you would be so ticked off, wouldn't you? I mean, you would. You'd be like, are you kidding me? Like, who does he think he is? And you just wouldn't want to talk to me about stuff anymore. It would be so insensitive. It'd be so rude. Well, it sounds so insensitive, but again, remember, it's coming from James. James, who's gone through all of this adversity. James, who everybody knows, suffers because he follows his brother as his savior, and James, who eventually is going to be stoned and martyred for his faith. So because of that, I'm sure they're reading that, and they're going, that makes no sense, but you know it's James. Like, what, what's exactly he mean? What's he mean by that? And James says, I'll tell you what I mean by that. I mean, when you're in the middle of in the meantime moments, you shouldn't get upset. You shouldn't get in a funk. You shouldn't, you shouldn't just give in to depression. You shouldn't just throw your hands up and quit or surrender. James says, no, you need a broader and a bigger perspective because there's a perspective on your circumstances where you can consider it pure joy. Well, James, tell me, what could possibly come out of this that would cause me to go, I'm so happy I went through that? He says, I'll tell you. You ought to consider it pure joy because you know that the testing of your faith. Now, just pause right here for a second because this is an important concept. James is acknowledging or admitting something that we all know is true. And that is simply that adversity tests our faith. Adversity always tests our faith. It does. Now, when we talk about this word faith, here's the thing. That is not a spiritual or a mystical term. That's not the way James used it. It's kind of become that today in church circles, but it's not what he meant. When he said the testing of your faith, he was just talking about the testing of your trust in your heavenly father. Anytime you see that, you can just put the word trust in there. He's just saying every time you face adversity, doesn't it make it harder for you to trust God? Well, yeah, of course it does. Doesn't it make you question and wonder and doubt, does God really care and why isn't he doing something about this? And he doesn't seem to be answering my prayers. Doesn't it make you wonder about all that? Yeah, it makes me wonder about all that. James says, that's right. Of course it does. And you actually should be glad 
when you find yourself in that situation. Well, James, that doesn't make any sense. It should be the opposite. Like, I should be happy when everything's going well and I feel like my faith is strong. And he says, nope, the opposite's true. Because your faith or your trust in your Heavenly Father, it's like any other relationship. Your faith is like a muscle. It has to be stretched for it to get stronger. The degree to which you exhaust your faith or your trust in your Heavenly Father is the degree to which your faith or trust can grow. So the more you stretch it, the stronger it gets. The less you stretch it, the weaker it becomes. So he says, because of that, you're looking at adversity as testing your trust in God, and you're thinking that's a negative. I'm telling you, it's the exact opposite. you got the wrong perspective. You ought to consider it pure joy because the testing of your faith is going to do something extraordinary in you. Well, what's that, James? He says, it's going to produce perseverance. It's going to produce perseverance. In other words, I'll say it this way. Adversity produces persevering faith. Now, what do, what do I mean by persevering faith? Persevering faith is faith that's full of patience. It's a kind of faith that never gives in and never gives up. It's not, when I talk about persevering faith, I'm not talking about the kind of perseverance that you and I have to endure when we're sitting in a waiting room for two hours waiting to see a doctor. That's not that kind of persevering or enduring. It's not the kind of persevering when you, you know, you go to the doctor and you have to have some procedure done. You sit there and it's painful, but you just got to let them do it. You kind of grit your teeth and get through it. That's not what I'm talking about. Persevering faith, the picture James is painting is that of a marathon. You get to the last few miles of that marathon, well, most of us wouldn't know what this is like, but I've been told you get to the last few miles of that marathon, it is so difficult. And you talk to any marathoner and they'll tell you what allows them to finish the last few miles when everything in their body says don't go another step is simply endurance and perseverance. That's it. Persevering faith is a kind of faith that is full of patience and endurance and it will not give up. Under pressure, it doesn't give up. Under pressure, it doesn't give in. Under pressure, it doesn't give out. That is what big faith looks like. There are people who talk about faith like this. They say, well, the more you pray and God answers your prayers, well, clearly the bigger faith you have. And so let me tell you my stories, because I prayed for this and God answered, and I prayed for this and God answered, and I prayed for this and God answered. It's the only stories I ever tell. It's like everything they pray the next day or 48 hours later, they've got an answer for it. It just seems so quick. And they're saying, oh, that's what it means to have big faith. I'll tell you how you can have big faith. No, no, no. They're, they're not going to be able to teach you how to have faith. What they're doing is they're selling magic. Magic is, oh, I've got a secret prayer here. I've got this, you know, order of steps to take, and then God will just do whatever I want him to do that quick. That's, that's not faith. That's magic. I'll tell you what big faith looks like. Big faith is a person, and you know some people like this. Some of you have been through this yourselves. Big faith is when a person prays and prays and prays and prays and prays and prays and prays, and nothing happens, and nothing changes, and they keep persevering and enduring and doing the next right thing again and again and again in spite of the fact that their circumstances are so difficult, in spite of the fact that their prayers are not getting answered. That's what persevering faith looks like. It's the kind of faith that doesn't give in, give up, or give out under pressure. And James says, whenever you find yourself in the, meantime, in the meantime moment, you ought to be so happy, not with the circumstance. He's not being that naive. He's not saying, oh, it's just all wonderful. He's saying, I'll tell you where you can find your joy in the middle of difficult circumstances. You can find your joy in knowing it is this very adversity that will create in you a persevering faith 
that you want, but you can't get any other way. The kind of persevering faith where you just keep doing the next right thing no matter how hard it is. It's the kind of faith you admire in other people. And he says the only way you can get it yourself is through adversity. And because of that, here's his encouragement to us. He says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You let perseverance finish its work. In other words, James is encouraging us not to do what is so tempting for all of us to do. We've all probably done it at some point. To find ourselves in a situation that is so difficult or so painful or so discouraging that we just hit the eject button and we give up. That we just decide it's not worth doing the next right thing. It's not worth holding on. It's not worth continuing to. Nope. I'm not going to keep doing it. It's too hard. And you quit. James says you can't do that because you short circuit your ability to experience the very thing you want the most. You short circuit your ability to experience and develop big, bold, persevering kind of faith. So his encouragement to them, in the middle of their adversity, his encouragement to us, is to believe so deeply that God is going to take this adversity and do something good through it, that you don't hit the eject button, that you don't hit the shortcut button, that you don't hit the lie button. I'm just going to lie and get out of this because it's too painful. I'm just going to cheat because what does it matter? Look how hard this is. And, you know, nothing is ever going to change anyway. I'll never be happy again. I just might as well cheat and try to alleviate the pain. Don't hit the divorce button. Don't hit the, I'm just going to power up. I'm going to try to control this. And I'm going to make it happen on my own. This is James' way of saying, no, 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 no. Do not hit that button. Do not go down that road. You let perseverance finish its work in you. You just keep trusting and believing even when it's hard to do, because, don't miss this, because that point of your greatest tension is actually the point of God's greatest work. The point of your greatest tension in your life right now is actually the point of God's greatest work in your life right now. The thing that you would give anything to have removed, anything you wish to have changed, that relationship, I just wish the kids would you know, change, I just wish he'd get back on track, I just wish this marriage would be different, I just wish I could go back and fix this financial thing, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I'd give anything to trade this in, I'd give anything to escape this. James is going, listen, here's what I want you to know. That point of your greatest tension, you can't see God at work around you, I'm telling you, God's doing his greatest work right there in the middle of that. Because it takes adversity to develop persevering kind of faith. And on the other side of this, you're going to look back and you're going to realize God was there all along doing something far greater than we ever imagined. So let me sum it up this way. Here's basically what James is teaching. Enduring can lead to maturing. Not always. I said it can because if, if I hit the eject button or if I don't respond in the right way or if I try to avoid or escape it, then I'm not going to mature. But if I will respond properly in the middle of in the meantime moments, enduring can lead to maturing. Now, when I talk about maturing, here's what I mean. To, to mature in your faith or to have a mature faith just means to have a deep faith. The problem is we get so confused about what deep means, and I still hear this all the time. I mean, people come up and they're like, you know, I just wish I had something deeper, and it's small groups talking to me going, I wish we, we just need something a little deeper to talk about. And I, when I start digging in and asking them, well, what do you mean by that? Well, every time, here's what they mean. We just like to learn something we don't know. That's what we all mean by deep. If I just learned something I didn't know, then I'd feel like I was growing and I'd, I'd feel a little deeper. I'm telling you, 
That's not what deep means. You don't find that anywhere in the New Testament. There's nothing wrong with learning things. But that's not what develops a mature kind of faith. And I'm probably a little more sensitive to this than others, or quite honestly, a little more cynical of this than others, to, to be honest with you, because I grew up where, um, you know, my dad was a pastor, so we were at church three times a week. I was learning something all the time there. And then, apparently, because they didn't want a PK becoming a wild child, they sent me to a Christian school on top of that. So we have Bible class four days a week and chapel on Fridays, just for good measure. So when people come to me and they're like, oh, I know a lot about the Bible and I want to, I'm, I'm not impressed. Like, okay, fine, wonderful. But I'm not really impressed with how much you know about the Bible. I've been there and I've done that. I'll tell you what maturing looks like. Maturing is when you're in the middle of these in the meantime moments and you just sit in it and you continue to lean in and you continue to do the right thing and you apply what you know. That's what maturing looks like. That's what deep faith looks like. Now, you all know this because, I'll give you two examples. You know this because there are some Christians you know, and this isn't being critical, and you wouldn't be critical of them, but you know this because you, you know some Christians who just seem to be perfect. You know what I'm talking about? It's just like they, it seems like they get everything right. They never screw up. They know all the right answers. They seem to do all the right things. They show up at church all the time. You know, they read their Bibles and pray. Like They just check all the boxes off. And how do you think about those people? I'll tell you how you think about them. You look at them and you admire them from a distance. You look at them and you're like, oh my goodness, I can never be like that. I just, there's no way. I, just, I don't know how they do that, but that's just so impressive. I could, you, are, you are so impressed by them, but you never think you'll end up being one of them. As a matter of fact, you treat them kind of like a zoo animal. You gather your friends around, come here, come here, come here, look at her. Look at her. She's just so perfect. Look at her. It's like everybody gawks at that perfect Christian, you know. But you can't relate to them. Nor do you find them in any way to be inspiring to your faith. They just seem so far removed from your world. I know what inspires you and I know what impresses you. It's not perfect faith. It is somebody who demonstrates a persevering faith. And you know people like this too. You've had conversations with people who, to put it kindly, are a little rough around the edges. Like, they don't use Sunday school language when they tell you their story. As a matter of fact, you're not sure they've ever gone to Sunday school. They start telling you their story of what God's done in their life, and it is, it is just peppered with curse words and this and this and this, and you're hearing these stories, and you're going, whoa, I don't know. You know? So but you keep listening, and you just find yourself sucked in because you start hearing about this adversity after this adversity after this adversity after this adversity, and they just seem so rock solid to you. They never gave up. They never gave in, gave in. They just kept doing the next right thing. They just kept following. They, they never leaned away. And when you hear their stories, those are the people you go, I wish I had a faith like theirs. I wish when I was in the middle of difficulties, I didn't doubt. I wish I were as solid as they were. I wish I could hold on and keep on keeping on. I wish I had that much endurance and faith and perseverance. Those are the people that you admire. Those are the people that inspire you to grow in your faith. We could all tell stories of people we know like that. And it's because in the middle of their difficulties, they endured. And those perfect Christians, and I'm not saying they ought to go wreck their world or anything, but those perfect Christians, when you start talking to them and hear their stories, it's, it's not their fault. But oftentimes, they don't have stories of adversity that are that deep where they had to endure. It's just a different experience. But when you know people who've gone through extreme adversity and they've endured, you go, okay, that's how they got the kind of faith they got, and that's the kind of faith that I want. James says you can have that kind of faith, but you have to be willing to endure 
not grit your teeth and just kind of close your eyes and wait for it to pass. No, you have to be willing to persevere. You have to be willing to have that marathon kind of faith where even though everything in your being wants to stop following, you take the next step and then the next step and the next step and you just do the next right thing. Now, if you're anything like me, you read this and you go, well, that's great, but I have been there and it is so difficult and I'm not sure I've got the ability to keep on keeping on. And James knew that. James had been there. So James gives us a secret to how to continue on when nothing in our being wants to. He says, not only do you have to believe that adversity is going to create a persevering faith in you, but in order to get there, you've got to ask something very specific. Here's what he says. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. It seems so strange at first. He's talking about persevering and difficulties and in the meantime moments and then just out of the blue, he's like, oh, by the way, if you lack wisdom, you ought to ask God. He'll just generously give it to you. And you think, what does that have to do with anything? I'll tell you what it has to do. It has everything to do with this. Wisdom is simply seeing life from a broader perspective. Or those of us who are followers of Jesus would say, wisdom is seeing life from God's point of view. And here's why James brought this up. Because when you're in the middle of adversity, isn't this true? The thing that is so, so difficult is to see life from a bigger perspective. The thing that's so, so difficult is to be able to zoom out and go, okay, well, wait, there's more to this than just what I'm in the middle of right now. There, there's a bigger picture here than just the pain I'm having to deal with today. You just get consumed by what you're in the middle of. You lose sight of the bigger picture. So James says, I'll tell you what you ought to do. If you want to develop a persevering, enduring, maturing kind of faith, then you ought to wake up every single day, you're in the middle of these in the meantime moments, and you ought to say, God, I'll tell you what I need more than anything else today. I need wisdom. I need to be able to see this the way you see this. Because I'm convinced if I see it the way you see it, then I'll do what you tell me to do. If I see it the way you see it, then I'll do the next right thing. If I see it the way you see it, then I'll take the next step and I'll keep following. Because you're at work doing something bigger than what I can see right now. This is one of those prayers that for me is really, really personal. And I, I just feel so fortunate because when I was honestly fairly young, I had people in my life who for whatever reason decided, maybe it was because they saw I had no wisdom, they decided to point out this verse. It felt like everybody I knew over my teenage years and college years, were pointing, they kept pointing out this verse to me. And from multiple different sources, I was encouraged all the time, you ought to pray for wisdom. You ought to pray for wisdom. Every day you ought to pray for wisdom. And so this just became a habit for me. And I'm not going to say I've done it every day. I haven't. But most, the vast majority of the days of my life, I have made this part of my prayer. I have asked for wisdom. And the thing I love about this verse is the promise is simple. If you ask, God will give. doesn't matter who you are. And not only will he give, he's going to give generously. And I figured, you know what, I need a lot of it. So I just made it a habit to pray and to ask for this. And so I know from personal experience how powerful this is. I don't pray this because I'm, you know, more spiritual than you. I pray it because I find myself just like you in situations all the time where adversity hits and I don't want to do what I know I need to do. And it, this is a trigger. Oh, I should ask for wisdom. I should just try to see this the way God sees it. Because as much as I want to be angry right now, if I saw this situation the way God saw it, I bet I wouldn't be angry. I bet I'd do the right thing. As frustrated as I am with him, as frustrated as I am with her, if I could just see them the way God sees them and see the situation the way he sees it, I bet I wouldn't be as frustrated anymore. I bet I wouldn't be, you know, as, as critical anymore. I bet I would lean in and manage this 
or navigate this in a different way. So this has just been such an important prayer for me to pray. And I'm telling you, if you're in the middle of an in-the-meantime moment, this is what you need. It's not enough just to believe, well, I think God's going to bring something good out of it because I'm telling you, it's going to get so hard, you're going to want to quit following. You have to wake up every day with the ability to see things the way God is seeing them because that provides the motivation to do what God is asking you to do. And James says, all you have to do is ask for that, and he'll give it to you. So here's my question for you. It's real simple. Will you believe God is at work doing something good in a situation that is no good? Whatever that no good situation is in your life, it's the custody thing that's just so frustrating, and it's like, I'm going to have to live with this the rest of my life, and it's never going to change. It's the family dynamic that you're like, I don't know how we're going to make it through. I just you think about how many more Christmases and Thanksgivings and, you know, awkward conversations. It's the marriage deal, the financial deal, like whatever, the health thing, whatever your no good situation is. Will you believe that God is at work doing something good in that situation? And are you willing, are you willing to ask God to help you see it from his point of view and then to persevere and endure so you can develop a maturing faith. Here's what we're going to do uh, as we close today. First of all, when you leave, I'm going to give you, uh, or the guest services folks are going to give you a little card that has a prayer on it. Because I just wanted you to be able to walk out of here with something really practical. And for some of you, you're not in an in-the-meantime moment, and you ought to just take this card, and you, know, you can just file it away somewhere because you know you're going to find yourself in a difficult circumstance at some point. But for some of you, this is very personal, and it's very real-time. And this is a prayer that I would just encourage you to wake up every day and pray because it'll help you to remember there's a bigger perspective. And the card of the prayer simply says this. Heavenly Father, I believe you'll use this until you choose to remove this. And I don't know when you're going to remove it. You may not remove it on this side of eternity. But God, I'm going to believe. I don't feel like it necessarily. I'm frustrated about it right now. But I'll tell you what. I'm just going to choose to believe that you will use this until you choose to remove this. And then, maybe you could add this to your prayer. So give me wisdom to see as you see. And help me to endure, to mature. God, just give me the wisdom to see this the way you see it. Help me not give up. I'm not going to worry about tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. Those are way too far out there. Today, I just want to do the next right thing. Today, I just want to keep following. Today, I just want to take the next step. Today, I just want to let perseverance finish its work. I just want to endure to mature. Now, that feels impossible to some of us. It feels impossible because the level of pain, the level of frustration, the length at which you've been in this situation, you just feel like you're at your wit's end. You feel like you've tapped out. You know, you've given everything you can give. But I don't want you to forget the promise that your Heavenly Father makes to you. It's the one we talked about last week. God says, if you will just open the door and invite me in, my grace will be sufficient for you. And my power will be complete in your weakness. My grace, my power, my strength, God says, I want to give it to you. All you have to do is ask. I'm making it available to you, but I'm not going to force it on you. So if you're willing to endure to mature, if you're willing to take the next step, if you're willing to let perseverance finish its work, if you're willing to believe I am here and I'm wanting to do something bigger in your life, 
Just ask for my grace. Ask for my strength. Ask for my power. And I'll give you more than you need. So as we close, here's what I want to do. In just a minute, the band's going to come up. We're going to do one final song, and this song's going to be new to a lot of you, but you're welcome to sing along. I'd love for you to do that. Most of all, I'd love for you to pay attention to the lyrics because it's a reminder of this promise. And for some of you, because of the situation you're in right now, I hope you'll take this song and use it as a prayer to your Heavenly Father to say, okay, I do believe this. I believe you're going to use this until you choose to remove it. And in the meantime, I believe your grace is going to be sufficient. I believe your power is going to be made perfect. I believe you're going to help me endure until you develop a faith that is mature in me. Let's pray together. Father, this is one of those things that for all of us, we've been there. It is so much more difficult to do than it is to talk about. And so would you help for those of us who are in the middle of these in the meantime moments, for those of us who... You know, some of us may feel like we're just at the end of our rope and we don't know how we're going to keep on keeping on and we're just ready to give up. Would you help us not to give up because there is another option? Would you help us to lean in instead? Would you help us to look up instead? Would you help us to trust and depend on you for the grace and the power to move through what it is that we're facing? Most of all, Would you help us to be able to see the way you see? Because that will provide the context, the perspective, the motivation to just keep doing what you ask us to do and believing that there's a purpose and you can bring good from all of this. We're so grateful for your grace and your strength and your power. And we're so grateful that you're a God who's so generous that you offer all of that to us. opportunity to hold our adversity with open hands, to invite you in.